Today, I speak with Deb Bogan-Huber, ecologist, slow food proponent, and co-founder and executive officer of Food Next Door Co-op and Out of the Box. As a multi-stakeholder enterprise, the group engages of new migrant farmers, consumers, and volunteers. Committed to nourishing its people as much as the land, Deb says the group keeps up engagement by focusing on communication, listening, and giving decision-making agency to members. You're listening to the Farming Together podcast. Farming Together, a podcast series exploring how farmers, fishers, and foresters can establish collaborative business models and co-ops that address current economic and environmental challenges. With your host, Amanda Scott. Farming Together is created in collaboration with Southern Cross University's Farming Together program. For someone that didn't know anything about out of the box, how, how would you describe it? Put simply, it's a weekly local produce box scheme. It has been set up to encourage people to become weekly subscribers. So rather than having to go on and, and shop every week, yeah, the subscription model is a way of guaranteeing a fairly consistent income for our farmers every week. So the scheme relies on three kind of basic principles. The first one of those is that it's fair. So we provide a fair return to our growers. So we negotiate a price for each item of produce at the beginning of the season and that price is considered to be fair from the grower's perspective but also from our perspective in that our customers are prepared to pay that much for that item. Second one is that it's about building community. So it's a social enterprise. It's run by Food Next Door Co-op and the, any profits from it go are fed back into the co-op to support more people to start farming, small-scale farming using regenerative practices, and particularly to support new migrant farmers who form quite a large part of our uh, new migrant population here in Mildura where we're based. And then the third principle is about improving our environment. So we generally, probably 99% of the time, we source produce that is grown using organic or regenerative practices and that focus on, on building soil health. It's also completely local, so we're reducing food miles. And then the other component of it is that we use minimal packaging so boxes that are reused so people bring their boxes back we don't use any plastic we try to minimize use of, it, of any packaging at all so it sounds like out of the box is sort of a, a smaller part of a bigger picture which is food next door yep. it sure is yeah. yeah tell us a bit about a bit more about food next door as well yeah, Food Next Door is a multi-stakeholder cooperative that formed, actually started life as an incorporated association a few years ago and actually started life with this, this sort of need that was identified in the community to connect people in our community here in Sunraysia with more local food. So we were hearing that people wanted better access to local food. We started out of the box as a trial and we formed the Incorporated Association to be able to start the trial. And what we found very quickly was that we didn't have enough small-scale farmers in our region to supply enough produce 
even at that stage, the trial was limited to 30 boxes a week. And so that kind of blew our minds that we weren't able to get enough produce to fill 30 boxes a week. We were supplementing it with, with local produce that was grown not to organic principles. We really then kind of went back to the drawing board and thought, okay, how are we going to find more people to farm the way that we want to eat? Around the same time, we connected with a research project being carried out by researchers from the universities of Melbourne and Wollongong. And they were looking at the skills and knowledge of new migrant farmers in Australia. They translated in the Australian context once they arrived here. And Mildura was one of their case study sites because we have been resettling refugees for about 15 years. The new migrant farmers from Burundi in particular were um, very persistent with the researchers in wanting them to help them find land. So the main finding was that new migrant farmers were not farming once they arrived here because they didn't have the resources to access land to farm on. So the researchers ran this workshop and invited a whole bunch of people to try and figure out if there was a way to provide land for these farmers and a few of us from the local food movement were there. In our conversations that led us to starting out of the box, we'd had some people offer us access to vacant land. We have around 25% of land in the irrigation district in some measure is no longer utilised for food growing. Some people wanted to see that land being used to grow food but didn't want to farm it themselves. We started a trial with a private landholder and some farmers from Burundi, former refugees from Burundi, and our group kind of facilitating that connection. And that's where Food Next Door really came from. At the beginning, the Food Next Door was a little bit separate to Out of the Box, but it has become now, as we've grown and developed, Out of the Box is a very integral part of Food Next Door and it provides a market that's already there, that's ready, that's up and running. It provides that for the growers that we are supporting to start farming to be able to sell their produce into. The thing that we continually talk about since we started is the chicken and egg thing. So, yes, you want more people to be growing food at a small scale, looking after the land, improving the soil, but they're not going to do it if they can't sell the food. And then on the other hand, yes, we want more people in our community to be, to be buying and accessing this beautiful food, but if no one's growing it, then, it, then it's not there for them to access. So, the, yeah, there's always been this um, dance, if you like, of how do we grow these at a similar rate so that we're not, we don't have too much demand and we can't meet that demand and so those people become disinterested and then on the other hand, we don't have too many farmers all starting to grow lots of food and then they can't sell it anywhere and then they stop farming. So it's a really, um, yeah, interesting, evolving situation. To yeah, be. and I guess to throw that in, you've also been able to bring another element in, which is actually supporting new migrants, refugees in that as well to bring across many of the practices that they would have been doing at home and um, helping them become part of the community as well. Yeah, well, 
For me, my background's in ecology. So one of the really interesting things for me was to observe how the new migrant farmers farm and the differences between the way they farm and the way the sort of more conventional farmers farm here in Sunraysia. They predominantly farmed without any chemicals because they couldn't afford them or they couldn't access them. Or Like that's a really interesting thing as well is how do we learn from them and we have been starting to incorporate some of their practices into the development of the community farm that we're um, we're currently doing their understanding when they arrive is they look at how our farmers farm with tractors and and all this kind of equipment and the chemicals and they some of them think that that's more advanced and they need to learn about it talking to them and saying, no, no, we actually need to relearn how to farm without that stuff. So we need you to help us. What what have some of the been the most surprising practices, differences that you've seen? Maize is one of the, the staple crops that are grown and eaten. So they eat maize flour as a, they cook it up. It's called ugali pretty much every day. So it's kind of like the way we eat bread, I suppose. The first time they planted maize they would go along and dig a little hole and then they would go along behind and put a little handful of compost into each hole and then go along again scrape a bit more soil over there and put three maize seeds in each hole and those were fairly far apart like nearly a meter apart and we had some people down who produce vermicompost yeah And they were saying, oh, this is really interesting. You know, in Australia, maize is planted very, very close together. And so we were having this conversation with an interpreter. Why are you planting the maize in that way? Why so much room between them? I guess maybe farmers don't really, I'm I'm not a farmer, so I'll just be upfront about that. But farmers might not necessarily think about why they're doing things the way they're doing them. It's just that's why they do them. But Joel was the leader in the Burundian farming community and um, has been working with us for, for the past few years. And, and he said, well, the plants have to breathe. I, that really, like, stuck with me. And then watching the plants grow, so you sort of have these three maize plants growing out of one hole, but all this space around them so they can breathe. And I loved that. For Joel, he has this real connection, particularly with maize, and he can just walk out there and look at it and say, oh, that that patch over there needs more water. He can tell just by the look of the leaves on the plants. The other thing that Joel does when he mills the maize is keeps the husks that come off the dried kernels and then they go back into the soil that practice we have started implementing at at the community farm. Lots of two-way learning. Lots of two-way learning. And it just sounds like it's really exciting because um, it's almost like coming from a different, I guess, philosophical way of thinking about your interaction with nature. Got these two different approaches that are coming together. Small-scale farming, in its nature, there is more connection between the farmer and the land and, and nature. So because the African community 
they are small-scale farmers. And even the members of the community who aren't farmers themselves, their father is or their brother is. or So they're all so connected to small-scale farming. It's like it's really a joy to have those people here in our community to be able to work with. Mm. Yeah. How lovely. You did mention before, Deb, uh, you were a multi-stakeholder cooperative. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, can you just tell us a bit more about that? Sure. A a lot of cooperatives are either um, grower cooperatives. They're quite common in, in agriculture where people who are growing the same thing may form a cooperative together to be able to buy an expensive piece of equipment or a, or a processing facility or something like that that they then all can use. Because of the nature of our food system here in Sunraysia, we had a lack of, of local produce and we also had a very, very small market, I guess, of people who wanted to buy that produce. So we really have had to work at a whole system level. We hope that's not going to be the case in the future. Um, Because of that, having to work at that whole circle, if you like, we've formed as a multi-stakeholder co-op. So we have four different member types. We have this beautiful graphic that we drew up to try and explain the concept because it it is quite complex. So the, the graphic is of a set of a pair of arms that are holding a box and in the box the box is full of soil with worms and nutrients in the soil and beautiful food growing out of that soil and then bees buzzing around the food so we talk about the the worms and the nutrients in the soil as being our volunteer members so the volunteer members are uh, not very visible but absolutely essential to the health of the soil and to be able to grow healthy food. And so they play the same role in the co-op. The soil itself represents our landholder members. So we facilitate farmers to access private land. That land is, is gifted. The access is gifted by private landholders. So they're absolutely essential to the co-op. The food represents our farmer members who are the very visible part of the co-op who grow the food. And then the bees represent our consumer members. So they they buzz around and come and go and buy boxes and are also absolutely essential. As we know, you can't grow food without bees pollinating the food. So that's the multi-stakeholder model. Okay. Well, that, my question would be, so I, we know that for cooperative success, it's really about making sure your members are engaged and engaged over the long term. And that can be really challenging in a cooperative when there's only one type of member. How on earth do you manage uh, with so many different stakeholders, I guess, that you've got to look after and keep engaged? Yeah, it's it's a challenge because we're new and this model is new. We're constantly reviewing what we do, talking about how we do things better. A couple of challenges. It requires a very different type of engagement with the different member types. I think initially we were perhaps trying to do too much or have our expectations were quite high about the number of people that we wanted to engage. So we were sort of looking at, oh, we should have more consumer members or 
we've come back a bit to focusing on working one-on-one with people and with small groups of people. So we're um, mentoring several new migrant farmers and their leaders in their own communities in different ways. So then the hope is that with their learning and their engagement, their contribution to how the co-op grows and develops, that they then become points of contact within their communities. Very much the same thing with volunteers. So we have several key volunteers who work with us on a weekly basis. So they're very engaged and you do need to engage people. But I think what we've been able to do or why we've been able to get to where we have is because those people have actually helped make decisions, which is what you want your co-op members to do ultimately. And how have you been able to, if that decision-making is something that's really obviously important, how, what have you set up to help that decision-making process or how is that structured, do you think, to have been so effective? Or is it just the people and their personalities? I think it's a bit of both. We're really good at communication. We put a lot of energy into constant communication. That's mainly by texts and WhatsApp groups. It's a bit more direct and personal, I guess, than emails and e-newsletters and things, which which are also a great tool. Because we have out of the box, which is this weekly thing that just keeps rolling along, our key volunteers are involved on a weekly basis. I just think it's a matter of of really constant and um, meaningful communication and and listening to people. So, and then when you incorporate what people are saying, letting them know that you've done that. We've conducted regular online surveys for out of the box customers and um, and potential customers. And then when we've had like a really strong response about something. We've implemented that and then put it back out on social media. Hey, we listened to you. You said you want avocados in your box every week. We're now doing our best to put avocados in your box every week. So it sounds like you're just making sure that you've kind of got frequent, regular and um, personal kind of communication. We, We are listening to you. We care about you. You're part of this and just keeping that flow. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the challenges we spoke of was the different memberships. The other one I, I want to ask about is different personalities. So obviously with so many different people involved in so many different ways, you're working with different personalities and some different egos. How do you make it work? There are always challenges working with people. It takes up the most time uh, developing and maintaining relationships But from the start, we have placed a lot of emphasis on that. There's always a lot of work to do, always, and it it never goes away. The work that's required to develop and maintain relationships can be very easily left behind. And I'm really conscious of that because I've been in positions in other jobs before this that have not allowed that time to spend on on relationships and and so you can be busy doing your work over here and not worrying about the relationships but then 
then it can fall over. And the work that you've done can be meaningless if you lose a relationship. I've been really conscious of that, but I also think the people involved in this journey from the start have also all been very, I guess, just the type of people who place a lot of importance on relationships. The people who started this, there were five of us who formed the Incorporated Association at the start, are all still involved. And we do spend a lot of time reflecting on what we're doing, how we're tracking. We've, we've had a couple of really tricky situations with relationships with other organisations and we've managed to navigate our way through those by staying true to our values. We have a, a statement of values for the co-op by kind of, well, being kind we've really built this culture of, of caring. When we have difficult personalities as part of our team and our operations, it's okay, it's fine. You know, they're good people. If people behave badly, we, we find ways of um, trying to communicate that it's not okay to behave badly, but, and, but this is how you could do things. Giving examples of Okay, if someone behaved badly, let's identify what it was that we didn't like. Let's give them the scenario that, that we would have liked. So, and that's worked well. It has. It has a strategy. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, my next question is around success. And, you know, I think success in a cooperative can look very different to different people and different stakeholders. But for you, in terms of both short-term success and long-term success, what does that look like? Short-term success would be meeting all of our uh, requirements over the next couple of years. We've received some great support from the Victorian government and we have some pretty stringent reporting requirements around that. In the short term, being able to deliver the outcomes that we've we've said we will achieve in those timeframes and reporting on those. In terms of running out of the box, it's certainly trying to meet the, uh, the sudden increase in demand with, with enough produce that still meets all of our criteria. Which is a pretty exciting challenge to have. It is. Yeah. It's a great problem to have. Yeah. It is, Yeah. In the longer term, I mean, I'd love to see more local food organisations. We have this focus on, on growing our small-scale farmers. If another organisation started up wanting to run a box scheme or open a food hub, I don't know, some other, some, you know, local produce market, I think that would be great success for our community and our region in the longer term more of that, more, more small-scale farmers, more of our vacant land around here growing beautiful food, diverse food, increased biodiversity on those small-scale farms and, uh, and more people buying and eating that food. That's I mean, I can, I can see that the, the model that, you, that you've developed and are, and are continuously working on improving is something that could be transferred in lots of different areas to sort of lots of different communities with different needs it's actually a highly transferable model and uh, 
And that's why I guess it's really important to share your story because other people may in a, be in a similar situation where they can kind of see all these dots and they're just trying to work out how to bring them all together to solve that community problem. I, I agree that the model is definitely uh, replicable in other places. What's something that you wish you had known before you started this? In a way, I'm glad I didn't know too much <laughs> or I, I might never have started this. <laughs> it has been incredibly challenging. We received funding from the Victorian government in July last year, quite significant funding to establish the community farm which enabled us to start being paid. So I worked for quite a long time on well below minimum wage. Income's always a handy thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. What's the community farm? Community demonstration farm. So it's um, on about three and a half acres of land that's been gifted access to by a private landholder to develop as a place to demonstrate the viability of small-scale regenerative farming in our region, to trial uh, some new crops for our region that may be better suited to our climate, to be able to run hands-on training for people who want to become small-scale farmers. Yeah, so as an education place as well, that's the community farm. So, we, yeah, we've, we've just started planting. We actually were out there last weekend keeping our distance from one another, spreading uh, green manure. So just starting to prepare the soil there now. for yeah. um, mm. so, so it's building bigger and bigger. And, and I read something about a water bank that you're setting up as well. This idea of a community water bank is one that's been around for a while and Again, we've got some support from the Victorian Government through, uh, through DELP, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, through their Climate Change Adaptation Program. So, so here we rely on irrigation water from, from the river to be able to grow food. Water has become a commodity, so there's a water market and the price of water fluctuates depending on the availability of water. We've been in drought for a couple of years now and water went from around $150 a meg up to about $900 a meg within wow. a year. A lot of small-scale farmers rely on temporary water, which means you have to buy water every year. You're subject to the, the whims of the market. We had a couple of growers who decided to stop growing or, or scale back growing massively because they couldn't afford water but the theory is that the water bank receives water donations they can be very small you know one megalitre of water from people who might have water left over or who just want to donate and then that water is distributed to small-scale growers who are growing food for our community so one of the things that happens here is most of the food that's grown here is exported. We have a lot of medium to large-scale monocultures of table grapes, wine grapes, almonds have expanded massively, some citrus as well, and most of that is exported from our region. So we're effectively exporting our water along with 
with that produce. Mm. And we really wanted to focus on, well, how do we provide water for produce that's consumed within our community, that's grown and consumed within our community? The Community Water Bank is set up as a its own standalone entity, legal entity, and it will have an agreement at least initially with Food Next Door for how that water is distributed. So small-scale farmers here will be able to apply to um, the community water bank. So instead of having to pay whatever the market rate is for water, they'll be paying a, um, a reasonable, affordable set rate for water from the water bank, uh, which will make it viable for them to keep growing food for our community. Sounds like a really fascinating project and watch this space. Hey? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting in this in this day and age. I mean, it's, you know, we've gone through drought. I don't know how, how you guys are going down there. I mean, we've had some flooding up here recently and now we've got this virus, but it's just so many unexpected variables and water such a tight, scarce resource. It's, um, yeah, I'd be really interested to see how that uh, initiative progresses. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. We know that, Starting a cooperative can be challenging, but can also be quite exciting. So when everyone's really got the momentum to keep going, but then as you go along, sometimes that momentum can drop a little bit. And we know that a number of cooperatives don't survive in the long term. How do you think you'll be able to keep going? What is it about your co-op and your members that will enable you to keep going? I think there's looking inside, so into your own cooperative is is really important. But I also think that having a network of support outside of your organisation is something that can keep you going, especially when times are tough. For me personally, being the executive officer has, there have been times when I've been extremely challenged and I guess finding it hard to see the forest for the trees and being able to have support from people outside who understand the cooperative world and how co-ops function and has been something that's helped me keep going personally. So we, we have a, an advisory board. Oh, I'll tell you this little story. So when when we got funding from the Victorian government it was announced in the in the budget we got told then because it was a significant amount of of money we got told oh you're going to need to have these skills on your board you know your board's going to need to step up they're going to need to be professional and competent and you'll need an accountant and you'll need a lawyer and we took that on board and we discussed it over a couple of meetings and we decided that we weren't going to do that. We had a board, a reasonably inexperienced board, people who were involved from the start, so they were all co-founders. We all had a very strong shared vision, even though we acknowledge we might not have all the skills that you might normally want to have on a professional board, that we actually needed to do the groundwork and form the foundation of the co-op with this particular group of people that we all agreed that was really, really important. So what we decided to do instead was get an advisory board with people with those skills who could help skill up our board members. And that's exactly what's 
started to happen. So we have people from the University of Newcastle with skills in in co-op specific governance and co-op specific law. We have the secretary of the Co-ops Federation. So we have these people who are, we talk about, you know, oh, they're a co-op person. So people who kind of naturally want to cooperate and work with other people and, and collaborate and see that as something that's beneficial and something that can make all of us stronger together. Because I've seen that education is a big part of what you do in your co-op. Yeah, and I think the fact that we're educating ourselves as the kind of the management and the governance of the co-op is a really helpful thing because we can see how important that is and that we need to be educating our members at the same time that we're educating ourselves and the general public about local food systems and small-scale farming. Absolutely. So talking about education and sharing the knowledge, for anyone wanting to start a multi-stakeholder cooperative, what would your top three bits of advice be? Uh, Talk to other multi-stakeholder cooperatives. Even if you can, go and visit them. Something we've done is is gone and uh, taken quite a few team members to other places to learn from other experiences, which is invaluable, absolutely invaluable. You can read about stuff as much as you want, but I think going there and seeing how things work is really important. And you know, there are a lot of people out there who want to help. So the, the Co-ops Federation, it was formerly Co-ops New South Wales, are fantastic. Newcastle Uni are still uh, running a co-ops course, so there's further education in cooperatives. We were fortunate to to be supported, two of us, to to do a couple of post-grad subjects in that course. Um, Was that through Farming Together? It was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was myself and one of our directors. There is support out there, but I'd, I'd really stress going and visiting other other places. Yeah, I think you're right. You can read as much as you like, but uh, talking to people who have had the experience and been there, done that, and seeing it for your own eyes is a whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe don't find out too much. <laughs> you're not the only you, person that said might, that, funnily enough. You might give up before you start. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I have heard that before. What have you learnt that has surprised you the most about farming together? For me personally, it's been how rewarding it is to see how much difference this can make in the lives of people in our community. Our new migrants here can be very isolated and very lonely. Just holding a workshop that they come to and facilitating the creation of connections not just for new migrants for people in our community who've been here for a long time as well who also are isolated seeing how much joy that brings to people has been very surprising for me and incredibly rewarding and certainly not something that we initially set out to do but perhaps is the most important part of the work that we do. That's a pretty nice surprise. Mm, it is. 
For more tools and resources to help you work collaboratively, head to farmingtogether.com.au or join the conversation on the Farming Together Program's Facebook page. You're listening to the Farming Together Podcast.